I'm Justin Noda. And I'm Kyle Green. And you're listening to Mortgages, eh? A show designed to educate industry professionals and satiate the mortgage nerds. Underwriting, investing, getting the deals done while having a few laughs along the way. Morning, bud. Morning, bud. What are we going to talk about today? Income documents. We are talking about income documents. So what we wanted to do today is just to kind of take not too basic of an approach, but we didn't want to dive in too, too much as far as um, the business for self requirements go. Um, But what we wanted to do is give everybody either a chance to update their knowledge or to get this knowledge in the first place on what income documents might be required and are typically requested from the lender for certain income types. So um, hourly, salary, business for self. We're going to dive into a little bit of weird income stuff that might come along. Um, RIF income, for example, pension income, company pension income. We're going to touch on all those kind of things just to kind of let everybody know and set you up for what type of requests you can make to your client, when you should make them, and kind of the reasons behind it. Awesome. Yeah. Um, So number one, I wanted to start off with why is requesting the right documents important and when you should request them. So coming from an underwriter background, and I'm going to catch a little bit of flack for this because I know some high producing teams that don't do this. (laughs) um, I'm always a fan of getting income documents upfront. And the reason is because you can more accurately underwrite a pre-qualification in order to make sure that when that deal does go live, you're not getting any surprises. Which teams are giving you flack for this, Justin? Because this seems pretty uh, pretty important. <laughs> <laughs> I plead the fifth. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> On the fact that All some right. of those teams are probably listening and I'm not going to name them. <laughs> you know who you are. <laughs> exactly. But it's definitely, right? It's an important piece um, and it's something that should be considered because it's going to save you as a broker or a team member time up front that might cost you a little bit of time at the back end because I would rather ask for some documents up front than explain why you don't qualify for that house I sent you out for um, come time to purchase. Oh yeah, imagine getting all excited. You think you're pre-approved. You find the perfect home, you write the offer. Oh, okay, so now we need these documents. You get them in and then you realize there's a problem there. You always want to um, under-promise and over-deliver, not the opposite, right? Yeah, exactly right. So as I was saying, request them up front. It helps mitigate any potential risks that might come with it. And let's just start in on the most common one. So most commonly, we're going to see people who have either an hourly or a salary type setup. And those are the ones that, you know, first-time homebuyers, very, very knowledgeable for letters of employment and payslips. They know what they're talking about. When you dip into business for self-income, it gets a little bit more complicated. And there's definitely some things that kind of reflect on both. But for salary and hourly employees, the base two are going to be your letter of employment and your most recent payslip. Letter of employment, I think, is an important piece because it's going to tell the lender the story. And there are certain things inside the letter of employment that have to be there. Number one, to make sure that all the information that you garner from it is accurate. And number two is that we want to make sure that everything they're providing is true. So again, we're looking out for fraud. We're looking out for altered documents and making sure that these, you know, four, five, six pieces that are on every letter of employment is an awesome way to to make sure that you're doing your due diligence at every stage of the deal. Yep, yep. Well, what are some of those uh, those points that you're looking for then? So I go from the top. I go from the top and I work my way down. Okay. Number one is I want to make sure it's on company letterhead. Yep. So I'm not going to accept anything that's written on a Word document. 
um, <laughs> on a napkin. Right, I've seen I've seen all of it. I've seen some crazy Napkins? stuff that comes. I have not seen a napkin. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I haven't seen a napkin, but I was doing an extreme example. Okay, okay. I was going <laughs> to say you saw a napkin, letter of employment on a napkin. All if right. anyone's seen a letter of employment on a napkin, please, please yeah, please let us know. <laughs> let us know right away. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So you're going to look for the on company letterhead. Uh, you know whether you work at Telus and that little Telus stamp is on the top or at the bottom. Maybe it's a header. Maybe it's a footer. But there should be something on that letter of employment that shows that it's from a corporation. Um, lots of the times there are, you know, pieces of the letter of employment that might not fall into place if someone is, maybe they work for a smaller company. Maybe they work for, uh, you know, a mom and pop and they don't have a company logo. So those type of things can be mitigated and they can be worked around. Typically, you're going to talk to your lender. You're going to have an explanation. You're going to, you know, make sure that you put in your submission notes exactly what the situation is. That'll help the underwriter understand and it'll help you get less requests coming back. Like maybe uh, what I've seen is if they don't have a logo, maybe attaching or sending in a copy of the business card of the owner with it, right? Perfect. Hey, I don't have a logo, but here's my business card. And I've seen that sometimes even just get scanned in in that corner where the uh, the logo would be, as oh, an yeah. example. That's so, awesome. I've never seen that, but that would work 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then again, I can't express how important submission notes are, and you're going to hear me push submission notes. But yes, making sure you explain that will help you to keep your deal moving along, not only at the pre-qualification stage, but on the live deal much, much quicker. Yep. Uh, so moving down, we've got the, it's on company letterhead. Fantastic. Um, we need a date on there. We need to make sure that it's recently dated. And I've seen letters of employment from one year, two years, three years ago when they start and they just think it's the same job. I make the same income. It's the same information on there. So this should be accepted. Yeah. And that's not the case. The lenders want to see that it is recently dated, usually within the last 30 days. Sometimes if you get a letter of employment and it's dated, you know, 31 days, 32 days, right? Maybe the offer came in that 32nd day. You can you can help by not getting a letter of employment, but having a payslip match up. Yep. So there's ways that you can work around that. But for the most part, what I put into practice is making sure that the date is, is recent and, and very recent is even better. Yep. The client's name. We want to make sure that we know who the letter of employment is for. The client's position. We want to make sure that we're detailing what they do. Right? Mm -hmm. Are they a teller? Are they a cashier? Are they a third year, a journeyman electrician? Because there's a difference. Mm -hmm. Your pay is also very important. So I know in, this is a salary and an hourly setup. So we want to make sure that that details inside the letter of employment what it is. Yep. If it's a salary, we want to make sure it's a guaranteed salary. And again, big letters. Yeah. So Justin, you've actually written guaranteed in larger font and in bold. And uh, there might be a typo here, but uh, I'm going to plead the fifth on that. The, so, yeah. there's, there's probably a typo. I'm very passionate I'm very, about the guarantee. This is guaranteed, <laughs> damn it. And it's true though, right? We have to make sure that the story that we're telling the lender makes sense. So we want that guaranteed income there and we want that yearly salary or that guaranteed and that you know monthly breakdown of the yearly salary. If it's going to be an hourly, we want, again, we want those guaranteed hours because full-time doesn't work because full-time can mean different amounts of hours, right? Yep. You can have a 40-hour full-time. You can have a 37-hour, 37 and a half. If you've ever done anybody in the health industry, nurses, doctors, that kind of thing, um, you see that 37 and a half hours um, yep. that come through, uh, whether it's Alberta Health Services or BC Health Services or anything like that. Um, so we want to make sure that the hourly is detailed along with how much per hour. Because yep. that's going to allow you to, you know, find out and do the math to find out how much they're actually earning. Yeah. Keep moving down and you're going to find the contact information for the person who signed the letter. Keep in mind that your lender will contact this person. 
mm-hmm. they'll contact us to make sure that all the information that is detailed in your letter of employment is true. It's pretty easy in today's technology to alter a letter of employment from I make, you know, 30 bucks an hour to I make $35 an hour because that's going to help with qualifications. So again, making sure that you're not being taken for fraud and you're doing your due diligence in regards to providing proper information and accurate information to the lender. I think we've all, you know, maybe had that twinge in the back or the hair stand up on the back of your neck with something. And if you have that, I always say explore it. Yep. I think that's a super important key is follow your instincts. Do you have a story? Do you have a twinge that you can think about? I have I have lots of stories about about potential frauds. I've discovered a few of them where they've, yep. you know, altered most of the time for me it's business for self documents and we're not in that yet. Mm-hmm. But I'd probably say the majority of the fraud that I've discovered just through my own due diligence is inside business for self because it's a lot easier. Right? Yeah. There's there's a whole bunch of little places that you can change one number here or change a one to a nine as opposed to a letter of employment, which is a very one-page document. Yeah. Um, the payslip, I find, is, is fraudulent quite a bit if there are yeah. people that are doing that. And it's usually the combination of the payslip and the letter of employment yeah. that, that re- usually tells the story, right? Can I tell uh, my twinge? Because I had one a month ago. I would love I it. I had one a month ago. Yeah. So we got the file actually approved um, with the bank and then... It was instructed, and all of a sudden, the bank says, oh, by the way, we're not doing this deal. Like, what? So normally, the the bank, when you have fraud, they won't actually tell you why they're not doing the deal. But they're telling you they're not doing the deal because there's fraud. And so that's usually where you want to start to dig into it and investigate it. When we looked into it, we read the letter of employment. We went through the pay stubs, which we'll get to in a second. We noticed that Okay, it's a bit odd, but for some reason, there's no taxes coming off of the pay stub. So talk to the client and ask him. He says, oh, well, you know, I just, I I know I'm going to owe money, but I don't want to, I don't want to collect it up front. Okay. It's possible because you do fill out a form when you get, you know, set up with an employer and you can say, hey, you know, don't, don't take taxes or, or do. And this is one of his, um, one of his two jobs. However, we read through the letter of employment and uh, we decided, let's just, Call the employer. Call the employer, and uh, and it's a home phone that answers. So it's like, okay, it must be a kind of a small company. Read the letter of employment again. The guy's the manager of a fleet of, <laughs> yeah, a fleet, <laughs> a fleet of excavators, and he's the head engineer for the excavator. So your company that runs out of this guy's home is is a you're apparently you have a, a large enough fleet and large enough company that you have one person that manages the fleet which and, a, and he was like a buyer for the fleet or something cr- crazy like that yeah also looking into it their facebook friends which hey you know your boss you know we're probably t- we're probably facebook friends you know i think we're yeah, facebook I think friends we're, i think we might be facebook friends yeah. but not every employee employer is their facebook friend oh and uh, oh they're also neighbors oh really <laughs> wow know? so you start to dig into it you know, it's an awkward conversation too because you just tell the client like, look, the lender is not going to do the deal and it's suspected fraud just just so the client knows. I'm not accusing you of anything, but there's a couple of things that aren't quite adding up. I, I can see why the lender might be thinking this. I will be letting you know that also because of the situation, I can't take on the deal. Yeah. And it was a tough situation. It was actually somebody who had referred me a lot of business. So it's an awkward conversation. You don't want to, cut that off, especially if you're a newer agent and you're only doing a few deals. This might be your third referral source or something. But it's important to know that if the lender's not going to do the deal, if I send this to, and this is what I told the client, if I send your deal to another lender, 
then these lenders do talk. That's the reality of it. There's Absolutely. something called Red X, which just hangs out behind the scenes and lenders can put this information into the Red X, which anybody can search up. And so if another bank notices, hey, Kyle Green's trying to send this deal in. We clearly told him this is potential fraud. Why is he trying to get this deal approved? And um, and now he's trying to send it somewhere else. That's a problem. Yeah. And so I just told the client, I can't take it on. I'm not telling you that, you know, I'm not saying that I know that you're fraudulent. I'm just saying that the lender thinks that there's some things and I can see why. I'm not telling you that it's fraud or not, but I'm just telling you that my stance is I cannot continue to work with a client that that a bank thinks is committing fraud because it makes it look bad on me. So I have to step away. Absolutely. Well, it's a good choice, right? A hard choice, like you said, especially for someone who's not making X number of dollars per year, that could be their third deal or their first deal in this market for the whole year. So a tough choice for sure. I wanted to pick up on something you said that I think is important is don't be afraid to call the letter of employment. Yeah. Right. That's something that I learned through my underwriting that I didn't do when I was just a regular broker um, is that, you know, absolutely look at the letter of employment and call it before you send it in. Right. Make sure that all the information is correct. If you're even ask your client if it's okay if I give this employer a call because maybe you need something with a new date. Right. And you want to take that off their plate, add extra value. Right. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. But at the same time, now you're calling, you know, Sharon from this HR company and you're getting a little bit of a feel for what that letter of employment is and where it came from. So I think that was an excellent key. Yeah. And the only other thing that I wanted to say that I kind of missed in the first part was full time and part time. Yeah. Making sure that's in your letter of employment is also very important because they're looked at in two different ways. Right. Full time employment guaranteed income is fantastic. Part time income can come in two ways. It can come in guaranteed or not guaranteed. So part-time guaranteed is when, you know, maybe someone works 12 hours per week, it's guaranteed, their pay slips match, you can absolutely use that income. Yep. On the flip side, lots of the times part-time income is uh, variable, right? It's, you have no idea, one work one day you work uh, eight hours, the next day you work one hour, that week you work, you know, 40 hours, and the next week you work 20 hours. Yep. If that's the case, um, then you have to look at a two-year average yep. on that. So someone had to have been in that part-time job and you have to provide T4s to support that. And then you're using your two-year average. Yep, exactly. um, two-year average, if the most recent year is higher. Yep. If the most recent year is lower, then unfortunately you have to use the lower of the two. Yep, exactly. Um, which makes sense. If you think about it, it's not always the way you want to look <laughs> at it because sometimes it does cost your client some qualifying ability. Um, but again, it's an important thing to notice. Yeah, and I found a few lenders during COVID uh, were a bit more accommodating and would use a three-year average because maybe the, the the 2020 or 2021 year had been a down year because of COVID, for example. Sometimes they will consider a three-year average. And I think occasionally some lenders will still use the two-year average if it declines no more than a certain amount. So maybe no more than 10 or 20%. I've seen some lenders adopt that. And I think this is kind of a fairly recent rule. I still always underwrite a deal using the lower of the two. But then if nothing is working, then there are some lenders that I think will consider a two-year average with a slight reduction in the most recent year. Um, So something to take a look at. Yeah. At Origin, we had a a meeting yesterday with Strive Mm. and they said the exact same thing. So one of their plugs was the fact that they are willing to look at above a two-year average because they're taking into account the the fluctuations that might have happened because of COVID. Um, So again, if you're listening and you have a deal that qualifies on those two years, but that third year needs to be not taken into account, there are lenders out there who will will look at it. This episode is brought to you by Strive. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know if we're allowed to say any lender I know, names. Right? Uh, that was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I figured if we can add value to the people listening by pointing them in the right direction, yeah. that's something that you and I do all the time. Of as course. far as being at origin and having brokers ask us where to send files. Yep. Um, so if we can help that person who's out there listening right now and send it there and they get that deal done, again, let us know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if that happened, that would be great. Yeah. So moving on, um, I wanted to talk about payslips because payslips are, of course, an important piece. Um, more so, again, on the salary and the letter or salary and the hourly components of income. Uh, but there's a few things that we wanted to look for. So again, lenders love to see payslips from big companies like Ceridian, mm -hmm. for example. If a payslip comes in, I'm going to use my napkin analogy again. <laughs> so if the payslip comes on a napkin and it's signed by someone who has the same last name as the employee, yep. right? there's going to be a whole bunch of questions that get asked. Oh, yeah. So a Ceridian payslip, we'll say that's, when, that's what's being used. Uh, we want to make sure that the client's name on it. We want to make sure it has a year to date. Um, and we want to match that year to date up, right? We want to make sure that that year to date is on track for whatever that letter of employment is saying. Yeah. Um, and there's a couple different ways. There's calculators that you can use. Some old school guys probably pull out the old pen and paper and start doing long division. <laughs> I use what's uh, what's called the um, timeanddate.com. And yep. what we're able to do there is just figure out from the start, from January 1 until, you know, November 15th, how many days has it been in the year? Yep. And then if the salary employee, I can take that annual income, divide it by how many days in the year, and then multiply that by how many days we have been in this year and find out just how, how on, on track we are. Yep. Um, Cause I'll tell you this, your lender underwriter is going to do that. Yeah. 100%. And they're going to come back. If you're $10,000 short, they're going to say, why are you $10,000 short? Yep. Right? So being able to know what they're going to ask ahead of time and again, mitigate that, that chance that they're going to come back with more questions, asking your client why, right? I can see that it was 10,000 bucks. Did you get a raise? Right? That's an excellent reason. Were you on vacation? Right? Another excellent reason. So if you can include those in your submission notes, not only is it going to allow your lender underwriter to qualify you quicker, more accurately, but it's going to be faster in regards to them not having to come back and ask you this reasoning. And the lender underwriter is going to be most appreciative because I'll tell you what, they have 10 20, 30 deals behind you that they really want to get to. And they're super sick of asking that question. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It comes up a lot. And you really should make sure that you've addressed that up front, right? Yeah, I, I, I find actually that one of the most important things about dealing with the underwriters is getting ahead of the curve and being ahead of the questions that they're going to ask. So especially if it's something that may end up in a decline on the deal, if you can get ahead of the curve and say, hey, by the way, here are some things. I've looked into this and this is how I'm mitigating it. I looked into this and this is how I'm mitigating it. As in a really easy example, when you're mentioning, oh, that the pace up short 10 grand, well, call the client first and ask them and figure it out because more than likely they got a raise, you know, three months ago or something yeah. like that, right? And it's, oh, okay, so when did that raise start? Yeah, okay. And then you can do the math, boom, put it in your notes and now you're good. Because sometimes... When an underwriter sees a bunch of gray area things that don't quite line up, they say, yeah, you know, I just don't like this deal. I'm just going to decline it and kick it back. And you don't even get a chance to rebut it. And now you've got to resubmit it, go back into the back of queue sometimes to certain lenders, and you've lost days and you might actually lose the deal because you just weren't diligent enough in putting in good notes, right? Yep, for yeah. sure. And it's not always the raise or the the good acceptable reasons that a letter of employment and a payslip don't match up, Yeah, right? Sometimes it's just the fact that 
it's it's a lie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Maybe it's a full-time employee, right? And they're supposed to be at $50,000 by this point in the year. They're only at $23,000, right? And they didn't go on vacation and they didn't get a raise and they didn't do this. And then you dig a little bit deeper because that most recent payslip they provided shows 40 hours for sure, yeah. right? But if you get the, the last three, the last six, the last 12, right? You can see that that 40 hour was the offshoot, yeah. right? That they're actually averaging 23 hours and none of it's guaranteed, right? Oh, or yeah. something along that line, in which case, you know, you don't want to waste the underwriter and lender's time and your time underwriting it falsely. You want to make sure that you, you know, maybe there's still a way to get the deal done um, and you should call that letter of employment provider, see if you can get that letter of employment redone and reworded to make it more accurate. Yep. And then maybe you can actually still get that deal done and be fraud proof, right? <laughs> we do not want fraud to happen. Yep. And it's very prevalent, uh, especially in, in the market today. There's lots of people that are trying to get stuff done in less than ideal ways. And I want to be able to you know, help brokers get an eye on it at this very, very base level. Because BCFSA, for those of you who aren't in, in BC, is our regulatory body. And they're handing down fines. And they're coming out swinging for people providing false documentation to the lender. I think they just levied a $50,000 fine to someone who provided not accurate information to a lender on a couple different mortgages. And that could have been potentially, again, I can't say whether they did it on purpose or not, but if they didn't do it on purpose, then it's clearly just that I didn't take enough time at the beginning to dig in and know what I was providing. Yep. And even if you're not a part of the fraud, if it's something that they they believe that you should have caught, you could still be caught up in it and still could be fined. Yeah. Right? So it's important to, to take your time and, and dig through it. Yep. Yeah, and that's where we, I looked at my team like, guys, we didn't notice that on the pay stub there wasn't any taxes being taken off. We're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, that's the first, that should have been the first indication. And, and it was weird that actually it even flew by at the bank level too. The doc person did not catch it either. Yeah. So made us feel a little bit better. Good. A little bit better. <laughs> Misery loves you company, know? Yeah, right? <laughs> of course, right? So we both missed it. Okay, that's good. But somebody caught it. Yeah. And I'm actually very glad that somebody did because I would not have wanted that mortgage to get funded on the books and then... It to go sideways and then people start digging, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. And so uh, again, I wanted to touch base on what happens if it's a non-corporate payslip. So if it comes back and it's not from Ceridian, I'll use my napkin example, although that's pretty extreme. <laughs> um, so let's just go to like, maybe it's done up on a Word document or I know there's lots of online payslip calculators that people do use where it doesn't have a name, but it's a very generic breakdown on what's happening. Lots of the times there's not even a year to date on it. And what that usually tells me is that it is a super small company yeah, or it's a family company, and the family company is uh, something that you guys have to be aware of as well, because that comes with its own rules and regulations. Typically, and correct me if I'm wrong, Kyle, it's a two-year history as well. Almost always, yeah. Um, I was talking to, I've got one right now. Scotia Bank actually might consider using salary and a, a number of pay stubs, like six pay stubs. Yeah. However he's been working for his dad for years. So it's been four or five years, but he's getting a raise next year and we're trying to refinance and restructure the debt. And he said, well, technically, if it's not a crazy huge raise um, and he has been working there for a number of years, then we might be able to use it. But normally, yes, it's a two-year average because it's too easy for you to just decide or for the dad to decide, yeah, I'm going to start paying my son $200,000 a year, you know, so we can qualify for a mortgage, yep. right? And then the concern is that that income, as soon as you get that home, drops right back down to 50 grand a year. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's too it's too close for comfort for the banks. Yeah, and that's, I have a story on that as well, is that um, I did the same thing. So I was, I underwrote a file and um, 
It was all done, looked normal. There was Ceridian. It was a different name on the letter of employment, right? It was Jim Smith on the letter of employment. Um, and the client was, you know, uh, something with a complete different last name. Um, so there was no connection. And it actually got discovered at the lawyer. Oh. Um, and it got disclosed to the lender. And luckily enough, he had been there for more than two years. Oh, um, wow. So we were able to provide two years T4s. And funny enough, because in one of the questions that the lender got the lawyer to answer, it was something along the lines of, do you have any relations to anybody in politics? Oh. Right? And it turns out that the client was a mayor of <laughs> a super-duper small town that wasn't even a paid position. No way. So they flagged the file. And re had to re-underwrite it based on that. It didn't change anything, but they had to. That's why they flagged it. That's why they discovered the letter of employment. That's why they discovered the the payslip. Um, and this was all done like eleventh hour type wow. stuff. So my Crazy. stomach was churning. If anybody yeah. listened to that, you know that broker underwriter nauseous stomach. Yeah, um, oh, yeah. That was going full force. Um, That's crazy. But we were able to do it and we were able to laugh about it at the end, right? Because the whole fact that it got flagged, he said, because I'm the mayor of a town that has like 37 people, right? <laughs> and he did it because his friends wanted him to do it because he had a certain viewpoint on like a certain project that needed to get done in the town. Oh, of course. But it wasn't paid. So yeah. those type oh, of things. Not paid. Yeah, paid. not at all. That's so, crazy. So those type of things, right? Where you just want to make sure that you're you're doing your due diligence to make sure that everything's going to close on time. The one other thing that I wanted to talk about is um, bonuses on overtime. So they're kind of looked at just like a part-time income, right? It's a little bit extra. You have to make sure that there is a consistency between what you receive, right? If you receive no money one year and you receive $100,000 the next year, there's going to be questions, right? So we want to make sure that we can mitigate those again with a two-year average. So two years T4s typically is what's going to be requested. Um, mm -hmm. If the most recent year T4 hasn't been given out yet, lots of the times they'll do the end of your payslip. Right, in which case, hopefully it details and breaks down what you got in overtime, what you got in that bonus, what your regular pay is. So again, making sure that you're reading through your entire pay slip to understand what you're looking at. Because lots of the times, bonuses don't come at the end of the year. Right, If you're looking at what your year-to-date is, and it's February, and his year-to-date is $50,000, right? but in the regular pay, it's you know three grand, and he got a you know fifty-seven or a $47,000 bonus, on February 1, right? It's going to yep. throw your year to date out because you're not looking at the complete the complete picture of the payslip. Yeah. So again, just making sure that you're reviewing it all, you're taking your time. We all know you can get a little bit, you know, complacent reviewing another letter of employment or another <laughs> payslip. Um, but don't get complacent, right? That's no, when it bites you. It's in the not ass. boring. It's really important, guys. It's super important. Super interesting. <laughs> Actually, it too. is it is boring. <laughs> but it's really important. That's right. So let's talk about some stuff that's not too not too boring yeah. um, and super interesting. And that's when we're digging into self-employed documents. Um, so when you're BFS, um, business for self, um, you can be incorporated, you can be a sole proprietor, you can be an LLP, you can be a whole bunch of different setups. And we're lucky enough that we have Kyle here because he's probably one of the best people that I've ever worked with in regards to reviewing and just vast knowledge on self-employed people. Um, so I'm going to let you take the lead on this one. What kind of documents are typically requested, maybe not in a super duper high level yeah. um, business for self client, but if you were just helping someone who is business for self trying to buy their you know first or second property, um, yep. what kind of documents would you look for? Yeah, so whenever you're self-employed, you always have to get two years of T1 generals, two years of notice of assessments, and then you also need to figure out what kind of self-employed situation they, they are. So they're either, either a sole proprietor or they're incorporated. 
a sole proprietor, the nice thing is their quote-unquote financial statements are basically embedded inside of the T1 General. Yeah, I love those. Statement, a statement of business activities, yeah. right? And if you can name the T form, what slip number, what is it? Two? Two, no, 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 no. So T1036 or whatever oh, it is inside nope. the form. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I swear I'll know that. Uh, I feel like I should know that one. You should definitely yeah. know that one. <laughs> so you have to figure out whether it's uh, they're incorporated or if they're sole proprietor. If they're sole proprietor, it's just the T1s and the and the notice of assessments. If they're incorporated, the number of documents starts to open up a fair bit uh, because now you need to get uh, two years of financial statements. And in fact, you need two different statements from the customer, which actually usually encompasses three years. So each set of financial statements typically will show the current year and the previous year on it. So you need to get two sets of those, which then go, gives you a three-year history of the corporate financials. Now, why do you need three years of corporate financials? Because the year end on those financials doesn't always line up with the calendar year. So we talk about a corporate year end. A lot of companies like banks, for instance, I think all of them have a corporate year end at the end of October. So if you ever see a bank say, oh, we had a great Q4. And it's like, wait, what? This is the end of October. What do you mean Q4, <laughs> right? Like how, how does Q4, you know, already, how is it ending already? It's because you can set a corporate year end that is not the same as the calendar year. And the problem then is that it gets difficult if the company is sending out dividends to the borrower because you can either pay yourself a, t- a salary or you can pay yourself dividends these incomes don't always line up with what's on the personal tax returns because of the date at which you earned and received the income. And sometimes you'll see that in the notes or notice to reader, they used to be called actually, now they're, they're review engagement financials, so they've changed. But, uh, but in, the, um, in the notes in the financial statements, sometimes they'll actually note that. But sometimes you actually have to dig in and ask the client who almost never knows <laughs> or more likely ask the, the accountant, by the way, um, when did you actually receive these funds uh, so you can actually line it up? Sometimes you'll see that the financials show that the one year had a dividend of 150000 and the borrower only showed $110,000 for that year. And so it starts to get you wondering what's going on. So in addition to the financial statements to show the income, what you also need to make sure that you get is the articles of incorporation. And so that's going to break down, you know, who set up the company, when when the, the company was incorporated, uh, who the directors and and shareholders of the company are. There's uh, there's a number of different things that you're looking for in the articles, typically. In addition to that, you often need to get something a bit more recent to show uh, who's running the company and who's managing the company, which would be the notice of articles. Also, uh, shorthand for NOA, which, of course, does you know can confuse people. No, Sometimes no. a le- lawyer will say, hey, here's the NOA. The accountant says, here's the NOA. They're actually two different... <laughs> NOAs. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> so, got to be careful with that. Sometimes you also need to show share ownership, and the share ownership is on something called the CSR, which is the Central Securities Register. So that document would be able to show you uh, who actually owns the shares of the company. So there's a number of different things that you'd, uh, you'd be looking for, but the key is being able to show who owns the company. Let's talk about maybe the reasons that you're asking for all these documents. So the financial statements, what you're looking for in the financial statements is, is the company making a profit or not? Because sometimes you can have a dormant company that's making zero money and is pulling out what's called the retained earnings out of the company. So if the company's earning income that retain is retained inside of the company, that's called retained earnings. And if the company's making the money and just sucking out the cash that it has sitting in the company and claiming that as a dividend, then in theory, your client on the tax returns will say, yes, I'm making $100,000 a year. But the company is not making any money. You don't want to lend to a person 
who's saying that they're making a hundred grand a year when really the company is not that profitable and they're just sucking the company dry and it's about to you know be dormant and have no cash left. People do this a lot of the time when they're getting close to retirement. For instance, when you're self-employed, you can say, okay, I'm retiring as of now. I'm not making any more money now, but I'm going to keep drawing money out of my company. And the banks don't typically like that. Uh, they want to see that the company's still active and earning an income and actually earning a positive income. If the company's income is a net loss each year, the lenders also don't like that. And you're going to have to provide a good explanation as to why you're going to use the borrower's income when it doesn't seem like the company can actually afford to pay that much money. So those are some of the issues that you're looking into. Also, understanding who owns the company, in particular, in circumstances where you're trying to use a program like corporate net income, which we won't get into today, but you know, later, exactly. Yeah. That's a later, later conversation, Absolutely. but uh, high level, some lenders will use a percentage, usually approximately 50% of the corporate net income inside of a company, but you can only do that if you own the company hundred percent. Really quickly as well, I want to explain a, a concept that a lot of our listeners may not be aware of, which is the fact that a borrower might have multiple companies. And so you also have to ask them well, when you're discussing this with them, okay, so are you self-employed? Yes. Okay. Are you sole proprietor or incorporated? Incorporated. Okay. And then how many companies do you own? Do you just have the operating company or do you have an operating company and a holding company? And sometimes I've had, I have some clients that have to send me a map, Justin, you know, <laughs> like, okay, get the accountant to send me the, uh, the map. And uh, it actually shows you which company owns what and what percentage shares they own of everything. And it's, it can be quite, uh, quite complex. So sometimes you do have to, uh, to get involved in, with a lot of information in order to dig through it. And then you're actually having to follow the money through all the companies, which can get uh, pretty interesting. I mean, that's something that I've gotten good at over time, but it, it takes some, some, some time to, uh, to actually get pretty good at being able to understand that. You're probably not going to have a lot of deals that are this complicated. And frankly, if you do, you can probably just jump on a phone call with the accountant and, and walk through it and say, okay, explain this to me. Where did the money go? You know, it comes into this operating company and then it goes out from this operating company to this holding company and then goes from the holding company to the borrower. That's the most common pathway. If a borrower does have a holding company, then sometimes the operating company is what collects the income, goes to the holding company, and then the holding company is actually what pays the borrower. So you still need to, even if you're uh, collecting the T1 generals and the corporate financials, you often still need to get the T slips because you need to confirm which entity is paying the, the, the client. Inside of the T1 generals, you can usually find, and it's not in every single T1 general, but many times the accountant will prepare a page that shows all the T-slip income. Yep, at the very back. Yeah, exactly. And so you can see, oh, here's a T-slip, here's a dividend from, you know, Operating Co. And you can you can use that. But a lot of the time, I still find the banks actually still want to see the T-slip, even if that page is in there. So you usually need to still get the T-slips for the borrower as well. Yeah, I've found the same thing. So I wanted to key in on something that you said as well. Um, you multiple times, you said, talk to the accountant. Yes. Call the accountant. Yeah. Right. And that's something that I have written down here because it's super important. You are allowed to talk to the accountant. Yep. Right. It's an excellent resource to be able to call them and ask them for exactly what you need. Because lots of the times it's like playing a big game of telephone when you're, you know, six years old. Um, when I grew up, it was called library hour. My mom <laughs> stuck, she worked two jobs. So she stuck me in library hour where we played the parachute game and telephone and all the old school. Yeah, I'm dating myself for <laughs> parachute sure. Parachute game. Yeah. The par I, I mean, I played it too. But yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> and so but you're the, old, Justin. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> if the parachute game dates me, then date away. Yeah. That was awesome. It was a lot of fun, right? It was. Yeah. So the telephone game, right? You, you start saying one thing and then as it goes down the path, you eventually lose the complete meaning of it. So asking your client for this, 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 and this, maybe they don't have a, a full understanding of what they needed. Then they're going to ask the accountant. The accountant's going to give them. You're going to get from them. And eventually you're not going to get what you want. So just take out the middleman. Right? Call the accountant and say, here's what I need. I need this. Can you send me this? Right? It's an excellent way to take somebody out. Again, you're adding extra value that lots of the brokers won't do. They're going to ask the client for that. And they're going to ask them again and again when it's the wrong documents. Right? So take that initiative. Talk to the actual accountant. Get the information that you need that will help you qualify them faster than the next guy, more accurately than the next guy, and with less stress than that next guy will. Absolutely. Yep. So there's a couple other things that I wanted to bring up just because there are certain types of kind of odd incomes that might come up that I just wanted to touch on. Um, and we won't go too deep into it. I just kind of wanted to mention what they were and what documents are typically required. Yep. So RIF, Registered Retirement Income Fund. Do you want to give a little brief description on what a RIF is? Yeah. So eventually, um, what ends up happening is a money in an RSP eventually, I believe it needs to be, I can't remember if it needs to be or it's or it's allowed to be uh, converted into a RIF, but I believe it's at the age of 71 that um, that RSP money typically gets converted into a RIF. And then it becomes a guaranteed income source. So it's something called an annuity, which basically means you're putting the money in and until you die, you get X amount of money each each year. Yep. And so a, a RIF is a, a guaranteed income source that will not deplete. Basically actuaries, it was just a fancy, fancy word for somebody that uh, that is really good with stats. They'll look at, okay, you're probably going to live until this age. And so if you put this much money in and we expect this much of a return on average, then you're going to receive this much income until the day you die. Yeah. That That's the way to look at it. So uh, you'll see, sometimes you'll see RIF income uh, come up. And generally, I, I believe that the borrower has to be, I think that, I don't know if they have to be, but I believe they're usually 71 or older. Okay. And I believe the documents that are needed for that, is it a T5? Yeah. Is that what it is? So then it's a T5, and then you're going to need confirmation that that account has enough funds in it to carry that payment per year forward and ongoing, probably at least as long as the term they're selecting. Well, in a, in a RIF, because it's an annuity, then usually you don't need to worry about whether they have enough money in it. But it, but in certain cases, you do need to look at, at different uh, documents. Perfect. Yeah. So the other ones, um, company pension plans. Um, so, you know, not necessarily OAS or CPP, which I'll mention, well, I'll mention right now, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is the Canada Pension Plan and Old Age Security. You need the same documentation for both, which is, you know, your T4A. That's going to show you exactly how much you've earned. Um, lots of the times with a company pension, you might need a letter from mm -hmm. the company pension provider saying, you know, that it's uh, this, it's long-term, it's short-term, it's ongoing, whatever the definition of it is. Childcare benefits, CCB is something that we see lots of. There's, of course, rules that we'll touch on later. We're just just documents today, everybody. Mm -hmm. So we'll touch on the rules as far as CCB requirements go on a different episode. But typically, you're going to need your CCB notice, which you can get from the Canada Revenue Agency. And I just wanted to bring up that it's there's CCB and then there's CCBBC, <laughs> right? Which is another thing that BC people get that you're not allowed to use to qualify. You just use that CCB income that's reporting. And it's the smaller amount. So again, we might not be qualifying at the amount that the client wants us to, but it's what we're able to use. Yep. Um, and seasonal. So that's kind of the last thing that I wanted to touch on is um, seasonal employees are very, very prominent out here in BC. Whether it's, you know, you're working at a ski resort or you're picking berries or you're, you know, working as a fisherman or whatever. Um, there's lots of jobs out there that you're only working winter or only working summer, um, in which case it's kind of looked at as a part-time job as well, where you yep. need a two-year average in order to show that, you know, it's continuing and there is a 
an amount that they're able to qualify for based on either an appreciating or a depreciating amount that you're qualifying for every year. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Lastly, as always, back in the day. Back in the day. Back in the day. Back in the day. <laughs> these are super fun because I wanted to make sure that we did something based off of income documents. Yep. So for those, and I'm going to date myself like the parachute game here again, <laughs> yeah. um, Maple Trust. Oh, right? yeah. Maple Trust existed. Scotiabank eventually bought them out. Um, and they formed, they stayed as Scotiabank, not Maple Trust. Um, but they had, back when I started, I was licensed in 06. So I can imagine that it was probably even more easily accessible before mm-hmm. that. Um, but for a stated income file, um, <laughs> what you were allowed to do, it was a one-page stat deck that pretty much said, Hi, my name is Justin Noda. <laughs> I work as a hot dog vendor. Ooh. And I make $200,000 a year. <laughs> sign on the dotted line. And as long as it made legitimate sense, maybe not a hot dog. Well, I don't know. Some of those hot dog guys in the outside the bars can make quite a bit of money. Oh, yeah, you hit you hit that on Granville Street. No doubt. Oh, yeah, you're making you're bank. Make, no kidding. <laughs> and then you actually, to go back to your business card thing, you stapled a business card to that stat deck and then you sack, you send it in, you faxed it in. I know again, but, and that was it. That's That was the income requirements. That stat deck, the one page signed stat deck and your verification you owned the company was a business card. Yeah. Um, so that doesn't exist anymore. And nope. we'll get into stated income files on another day, but we all know that it's not one doc and business card anymore. There's, you know, a true state, it doesn't even really exist anymore. So, exactly. Um, but yeah, so that's my back in the day. Yep. Um, Kyle, did you yep. have anything you wanted to add? At the I just end? want to add in one, one little quick thing that I use all the time when talking to clients. Whenever you're explaining income, and this is one, one item that encompasses basically every type of income that you can have. It's either your minimum guaranteed income or what you've averaged the last two years. And it goes back to if you're self-employed, you don't have a guaranteed income. Uh, you, have, you have to use a two-year average. If you're part-time, then you don't have a guaranteed income. You know, if, even if you have a guaranteed income, but you have overtime, then it's the guaranteed income or with the two-year average income that you're using, right? So no matter what, it's always whatever you're guaranteed or what you've averaged for the last two years for your income. It's an easy one-sentence way of explaining what income we're able to use and what income we're not able to use. Awesome. Um, We also have created a document tree that shows every type of document that you need for every type of situation. If that's something that interests you and you'd like it, please reach out to our Facebook community. You can get in touch with me or Kyle through there, and we're happy to send that, happy to share anything we've got, we've created. Um, And other than that, thanks for the episode, bud. Yeah. Thanks, bud. Have a great day. (laughs) See ya. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to sit with us. Hopefully you're able to take a couple things from today's episode, implement it into your everyday, and improve in the areas you need to. For direct interaction with us, please join the conversation through our Facebook community. Check the link in the show notes, and happy brokering. 